0: Chapter two. The Emperor of Lilliput, attended by several of the nobility, comes to see the author in his confinement. The Emperor's person and habits described. Learned men appointed to teach the author their language. He gains favor by his mild disposition. His pockets are searched, and his sword and pistols taken from him. When I found myself on my feet, I looked about me, and must confess I never beheld a more entertaining prospect. THE COUNTRY AROUND APPEARED LIKE A CONTINUED GARDEN, AND THE enclosed FIELDS, WHICH WERE GENERALLY FORTY FEET SQUARE, RESEMBLED SO MANY BEDS OF FLOWERS. THESE FIELDS WERE INTERMINGLED WITH WOODS OF HALF A STANG, AND THE TALLEST TREES, AS I COULD JUDGE, APPEARED TO BE SEVEN FEET HIGH. I VIEWED THE TOWN ON MY LEFT HAND, WHICH LOOKED LIKE THE PAINTED SCENE OF A CITY IN A THEATRE. I HAD BEEN FOR SOME HOURS EXTREMELY PRESSED BY THE NECESSITIES OF NATURE which was no wonder it being almost two days since i had last disburdened myself i was under great difficulties between urgency and shame the best expedient i could think of was to creep into my house which i accordingly did and shutting the gate after me i went as far as the length of my chain would suffer and discharged my body of that uneasy load but this was the only time i was ever guilty of so uncleanly an action for which I cannot but hope the candid reader will give some allowance, after he has maturely and impartially considered my case and the distress I was in. From this time my constant practice was, as soon as I rose, to perform that business in open air, at the full extent of my chain, and due care was taken every morning before company came, that the offensive matter should be carried off in wheelbarrows, by two servants appointed for that purpose. I would not have dwelt so long upon a circumstance that, perhaps at first sight, may appear not very momentous, if I had not thought it necessary to justify my character, in point of cleanliness, to the world, which, I am told, some of my maligners have been pleased upon this, and other occasions, to call into question. When this adventure was at an end, I came back out of my house, having occasion for fresh air. The emperor was already descended from the tower, and advancing on horseback towards me, which had liked to have cost him dear, for the beast, though very well trained, yet wholly unused to such a sight, which appeared as if a mountain moved before him, reared up on his hind feet. But that prince, who is an excellent horseman, kept his seat, till his attendants ran in, and held the bridle, while his majesty had time to dismount." when he alighted, he surveyed me round with great admiration, but kept beyond the length of my chain. He ordered his cooks and butlers, who were already prepared, to give me victuals and drink, which they pushed forward in a sort of vehicle, upon wheels, till I could reach them. I took these vehicles, and soon emptied them all. Twenty of them were filled with meat, and ten with liqueur. Each of the former afforded me two or three good mouthfuls, and I emptied the liqueur of ten vessels, which was contained in earthen vials, into one vehicle, drinking it off at a draught, and so I did with the rest. The empress, and young princes of the blood of both sexes, attended by many ladies, sat at some distance in their chairs, but upon the accident that happened to the emperor's horse, they alighted, and came near his person, which I am now going to describe." He is taller by almost the breadth of my nail than any of his court, which alone is enough to strike an awe into the beholders. His features are strong and masculine, with an Austrian lip and arched nose. His complexion olive, his countenance erect, his body and limbs well proportioned, all his motions graceful, and his deportment majestic. He was then past his prime, being twenty-eight years and three-quarters old of which he had reigned about seven in great felicity, and generally victorious. For the better convenience of beholding him, I lay on my side, so that my face was parallel to his, and he stood but three yards off. However, I have had him since many times in my hand, and therefore cannot be deceived in the description. His dress was very plain and simple, and the fashion of it between the Asia-static and the European. But he had on his head a light helmet of gold, adorned with jewels and a plume on the crest. He held his sword drawn in his hand to defend himself, if I should happen to break loose. It was almost three inches long. The hilt and scabbard were gold-enriched with diamonds. His voice was shrill, but very clear and articulate, and I could distinctly hear it when I stood up. The ladies and courtiers were all magnificently clad so that the spot they stood upon seemed to resemble a petticoat spread upon the ground, embroidered with figures of gold and silver. His imperial majesty spoke often to me, and I returned answers, but neither of us could understand a syllable. There were several of his priests and lawyers present, as I conjectured by their habits, who were commanded to address themselves to me, and I spoke to them in many languages, as I had the least smattering of— which were high and low Dutch, Latin, French, Spanish, Italian, and Lingua Franca, but all to no purpose. After about two hours the court retired, and I was left with a strong guard, to prevent the impertinence, and probably the malice of the rabble, who were very impatient to crowd about me as near as they durst, and some of them had the impudence to shoot their arrows at me, as I sat on the ground by the door of my house whereof one very narrowly missed my left eye. But the colonel ordered six of the ringleaders to be seized, and thought no punishment so proper as to deliver them bound into my hands, which some of his soldiers accordingly did, pushing them forward with the butt-ends of their pikes into my reach. I took them in my right hand, put five of them into my coat-pocket, and as to the sixth, I made a countenance as if I would eat him alive. The poor man squalled terribly— and the colonel and his officers were in much pain, especially when they saw me take out my penknife. But I soon put them out of fear, for, looking mildly, and immediately cutting the strings he was bound with, I set him gently on the ground, and away he ran. I treated the rest in the same manner, taking them one by one out of my pocket, and I observed both the soldiers and people were highly delighted at this mark of my clemency, which was represented very much to my advantage at court. Towards night I got with some difficulty into my house, where I lay on the ground, and continued to do so about a fortnight, during which time the emperor gave orders to have a bed prepared for me. Six hundred beds of the common measure were brought in carriages, and worked up in my house. A hundred and fifty of their beds, sewn together, made up the breadth and length, and these were four double, which however kept me but very indifferently from the hardness of the floor that was of smooth stone by the same computation they provided me with sheets blankets and coverlets tolerable enough for one who had been so long inured to hardships as the news of my arrival spread through the kingdom it brought prodigious numbers of rich idle and curious people to see me so that the villages were almost emptied and a great neglect of tillage and household affairs must have ensued, if his imperial majesty had not provided, by several proclamations and orders of state, against this inconveniency. He directed that those who had already beheld me should return home, and not presume to come within fifty yards of my house, without license from the court, whereby the secretaries of state got considerable fees. In the meantime the emperor held frequent councils, to debate what course should be taken with me, and I was afterwards assured by a particular friend, a person of great quality, who was as much in the secret as any, that the court was under many difficulties concerning me. They apprehended my breaking loose, that my diet would be very expensive, and might cause a famine. Sometimes they determined to starve me, or at least to shoot me in the face and hands with poisoned arrows, which would soon dispatch me but again they considered, that the stench of so large a carcass might produce a plague in the metropolis, and probably spread through the whole kingdom. In the midst of these consultations, several officers of the army went to the door of the great council chamber, and two of them being admitted, gave an account of my behaviour to the six criminals above mentioned, which made so favourable an impression in the breast of his majesty, and the whole board, in my behalf, that an imperial commission was issued out, obliging all the villages nine hundred yards round the city to deliver in every morning six beeves, forty sheep and other victuals for my sustenance together with a proportional quantity of bread and wine and other liqueurs for the due payment of which his majesty gave assignments upon his treasury for this prince lives chiefly upon his own demences seldom except upon great occasions raising any subsidies upon his subjects who are bound to attend him in his wars at their own expense. An establishment was also made of six hundred persons to be my domestics, who had board wages allowed for their maintenance, and tents built for them very conveniently on each side of my door. It was likewise ordered that three hundred tailors should make me a suit of clothes, after the fashion of the country, that six of His Majesty's greatest scholars should be employed to instruct me in their language, and, lastly, that the Emperor's horses, and those of the nobility and troops of the guards, should be frequently exercised in my sight to accustom themselves to me. All these orders were duly put in execution, and in about three weeks I made a great progress in learning their language, during which time the Emperor frequently honoured me with his visits, and was pleased to assist my masters in teaching me. We began already to converse together in some sort— and the first words I learnt were to express my desire that he would please give me my liberty, which I every day repeated on my knees. His answer, as I could comprehend it, was that this must be the work of time, not to be thought on without the advice of his counsel, and that first I must Lumos Kelmin Peso Desmarlon Eposo, that is, swear a peace with him and his kingdom. However, "'that I should be used with all kindness. "'And he advised me to acquire, by my patience and discreet behaviour, "'the good opinion of himself and his subjects. "'He desired, I would not take it ill, "'if he gave orders to certain proper officers, to search me, "'for probably I might carry about me several weapons, "'which must needs be dangerous things, "'if they answered the bulk of so prodigious a person. "'I said,' his majesty should be satisfied, for I was ready to strip myself, and turn my pockets before him. This I delivered part in words, and part in signs. He replied, that by the laws of the kingdom I must be searched by two of his officers, that he knew this could not be done without my consent and assistance, and he had so good an opinion of my generosity and justice, as to trust their persons in my hands, that whatever they took from me, should be returned when I left the country, or paid for at the rate which I would set upon them. I took up the two officers in my hands, put them first in my coat-pockets, and then into every other pocket about me, except my two fobs, and another secret pocket, which I had no mind should be searched, wherein I had some little necessities that were of no consequence to any but myself. In one of my fobs there was a silver watch— and in the other a small quantity of gold in a purse. These gentlemen, having pen, ink, and paper about them, made an exact inventory of everything they saw, and when they had done, desired I would set them down, that they might deliver it to the emperor. This inventory I afterwards translated into English, and is, word for word, as follows. In the right coat-pocket of the great man-mountain— for so I interpret the words quinbus flesterin. After the strictest search, we found only one great piece of coarse cloth, large enough to be a footcloth for Your Majesty's chief room of state. In the left pocket, we saw a huge silver chest, with a cover of the same metal, which we, the searchers, were not able to lift. We desired it should be opened, and one of us stepping into it, found himself up to the mid leg in a sort of dust. "'Some part whereof, flying up to our faces, set us both a-sneezing for several times together. "'In his right waistcoat pocket we found a prodigious bundle of white, thin substances, "'folded one over another, about the bigness of three men, "'tied with a strong cable, and marked with black figures, "'which we humbly conceived to be writings, "'every letter almost half as large as the palm of our hands.' In the left, there was a sort of engine from the back of which were extended twenty long poles resembling the palisados before Your Majesty's court, wherewith we conjectured the man mounting combs his head, for we did not always trouble him with questions because we found it a great difficulty to make him understand us in the large pocket on the right side of his middle cover, so I translated the word "ranfulo" by which they meant my breeches we saw a hollow pillow of iron, about the length of a man, fastened to a strong piece of timber, larger than the pillar. And upon one side of the pillar were huge pieces of iron sticking out, cut into strange figures, which we know not what to make of. In the left pocket, another engine of the same kind. In the smaller pocket on the right side were several round, flat pieces of white and red metal, of different bulk. Some of the white which seemed to be silver, were so large and heavy that my comrade and I could hardly lift them. In the left pocket were two black pillars, irregularly shaped. We could not, with difficulty, reach the top of them, as we stood at the bottom of his pocket. One of them was covered, and seemed all of a piece, but at the upper end of the other there appeared a white round substance, about twice the bigness of our heads. Within each of these were enclosed a prodigious plate of steel, which, by our orders, we obliged him to show us, because we apprehended they might be dangerous engines. He took them out of their cases, and told us that in his own country his practice was to shave his beard with one of these, and cut his meat with the other. There were two pockets which we could not enter. These he called his fobs. They were two large slits cut into the top of his middle cover, but squeezed closed by the pressure of his belly, out of the right fob hung a great silver chain, with a wonderful kind of engine at the bottom. We directed him to draw out whatever was at the end of that chain, which appeared to be a globe, half silver and half of some transparent metal, for, on the transparent side, we saw certain strange figures circularly drawn, and thought we could touch them, till we found our figures stopped by the lucid substance. He put this engine into our ears, which made an incessant noise, like that of a water-mill, and we conjecture it is either some unknown animal, or the god that he worships. But we are more inclined to the latter opinion, because he assured us, if we understood him right, for he expressed himself very imperfectly, that he seldom did anything without consulting it. He called it his oracle, and said, it pointed out the time for every action of his life, From the left fob he took out a net almost large enough for a fisherman, but contrived to open and shut like a purse, and served him for the same use. We found therein several massy pieces of yellow metal, which, if they be real gold, must be of immense value. Having thus, in obedience to your majesty's commands, diligently searched all his pockets, we observed a girdle about his waist made of the hide of some prodigious animal, from which, on the left side— hung a sword of the length of five men, and on the right a bag, or pouch, divided into two cells, each cell capable of holding three of your majesty's subjects. In each of these cells were several globes, or balls, of a most ponderous metal, about the bigness of our heads, and requiring a strong hand to lift them. The other cell contained a heap of black grains, but of no great bulk or weight, for we could hold above fifty of them in the palm of our hands. This is an exact inventory of what we found about the body of the Man-Mountain, who used us with great civility, and due respect to your Majesty's commission, signed and sealed on the fourth day of the eighty-ninth moon of your Majesty's auspicious reign, Clefrin Freelock, Marcy Freelock. When this inventory was read over to the Emperor, he directed me, although in very gentle terms, to deliver up several particulars. He first called for my scimitar, which I took out, scabbard and all. In the meantime he ordered three thousand of his choicest troops, who then attended him, to surround me at a distance, with their bows and arrows just ready to discharge. But I did not observe it, for mine eyes were wholly fixed upon his majesty. He then desired me to draw my scimitar which although it had got some rust by the sea-water was in most parts exceedingly bright i did so and immediately all the troops gave a shout between terror and surprise for the sun shone clear and the reflection dazzled their eyes as i waved the scimitar to and fro in my hand his majesty who is a most magnanimous prince was less daunted than i could expect he ordered me to return it into the scabbard and cast it on the ground as gently as I could, about six feet from the end of my chain. The next thing he demanded was of the hollow iron pillars, by which he meant my pocket-pistols. I drew it out, and at his desire, as well as I could, expressed to him the use of it, and charging it only with powder, which, by the closeness of my pouch, happened to escape wetting in the sea, an inconvenience against which all prudent mariners take special care to provide. I first cautioned the Emperor not to be afraid, and then I let it off in the air. The astonishment here was much greater than at the sight of my scimitar. Hundreds fell down as if they had been struck dead, and even the Emperor, although he stood his ground, could not recover himself for some time. I delivered up both my pistols in the same manner as I had done my scimitar, and then my pouch of powder and bullets, begging him that the former might be kept from fire for it would kindle with the smallest spark, and blow up his imperial palace into the air. I likewise delivered up my watch, which the emperor was very curious to see, and commanded two of his tallest yeoman guards to bear it on a pole upon their shoulders, as draymen in England do a barrel of ale. He was amazed at the continual noise it made, and the motion of the minute-hand, which he could easily discern, for their sight is much more acute than ours. He asked the opinions of his learned men about it, which were various and remote, as the reader may well imagine without my repeating, although, indeed, I could not very perfectly understand them. I then gave up my silver and copper money, my purse with nine large pieces of gold, and some smaller ones, my knife and razor, my comb and silver snuff-box, my handkerchief and journal-book. My scimitar, pistols, and pouch were conveyed in carriages to His Majesty's stores but the rest of my goods were returned to me. I had, as I before observed, one private pocket, which escaped their search, wherein there was a pair of spectacles, which I sometimes use for the weakness of mine eyes, a pocket perspective, and some other little conveniences, which, being of no consequence to the Emperor, I did not think myself bound in honour to discover. And I apprehended they might be lost or spoiled if I ventured them out of my possession. End of chapter Two, Part One.